If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we'll actually be looking at the whole chapter in the next 35 minutes or so. So I said or so, just in case. Um, there was an interesting article in the Los Angeles Times back in March of 1991. In it, they recount the story of Clayton Carpenter's mother, Ruth. Clayton was in the first Gulf War. And on February 27th, Ruth received a call that her son had died. Just two hours before officially there was this official end of the hostilities. And of course you can imagine she was just broken and could not be consoled. It was a, it was a She's beside herself. Three days later, the LA Times tells us, she received a phone call. She picked up the phone. And on the other end of the phone, she heard, Hi, this is Clayton. She couldn't believe it. So she asked him a series of questions that only her son would actually know. And it was her son. The army had made a mistake. He had not actually died. He had only been injured. Incredible story, isn't it? Thought he had died. Three days later, some really great news. Just like Ruth's experience, the disciples were overwhelmed because Jesus had died. But unlike Clayton... Jesus had died, hadn't he? Remember that spear that was put into his side to show that he had actually died. And he was taken down from the cross and he was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and they wrapped all kinds of linen cloth around him, somewhere between 65 and 75 pounds worth of powdered spices were put all around his body. That's what they did. Not because they were trying to embalm him, the Jews did it because of the potential stench. It's a very different, different format because Jews knew eventually the flesh would rot, they could go back into the tomb, and they could put the bones into a bone box or into another location. That's what they did. So there was no question that Jesus had died. When we come to this text, I want you to watch for something here in John 20. It, it, it was... Really, really amazing to me to go back through this passage this past week. And what you will find is Jesus will do whatever he needs to to convince his eyewitnesses, people that knew him, that he had resurrected from the grave. There's, there's going to be a whole host of people that are going to come to this text and go like, wait a second. And at every point, Jesus is going to prove his resurrection to them. So come with me as we walk through this passage, John chapter 20. And we're going to move from what God does with Peter and John to what God does with Mary to what he does with the ten disciples to what he does with Thomas. And in case you're sitting here and you're saying, hey man, I don't want just a history lesson. This text also talks about us. 
watch when we get to the end. So what does Jesus do? Look at the text, John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, Tim read a passage from Luke earlier. And what's really clear there is several women come to the tomb and some of those women are actually going to see angels right away. That's what Luke tells us. But when we read John's perspective, what he tells us is these women came to the tomb, but Mary Magdalene did not wait around to go into the tomb and actually see the angels. Mary Magdalene, as soon as she saw an open tomb, you know what she thought? She thought to herself, oh my goodness, he's, raised from the, he's, he's risen from the grave. Is that No, no, that's not what she thought. You know what she thought? She looked at that tomb and she, she saw that stone rolled away. She thought, oh my goodness, somebody stole his body. That's all she could think. There was nothing in Mary's psyche that made her come to that tomb thinking, oh, this is going to be great uh, because Jesus is going to raise from the grave. They thought he had died. He had died and they thought that was it. Even though he had taught them throughout the ministry he was going to resurrect, she still didn't see it. And so she comes with the other women. They're going to wait around. She immediately sees the open tomb and she's thinking, somebody stole his body. I got to tell Peter and John. And she cuts and runs. Look what happens. Verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, that's John, uh, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. Don't you love that? He would ask John, hey, what's your favorite song? He would say, Jesus loved me, loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He says, if you want to know who I am, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Doesn't mean he doesn't love the other ones. It's just that he's enamored by the fact that he's loved of God, Jesus in particular. So, Peter and John. And she comes and she says to them there in verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Guys, somebody stole the body. We got to find it. Why? Because she just wants to honor him. She wants to know where the corpse is. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and Came to, the came to the tomb first. Perhaps he was on the local track team or something. Whatever. He got to the tomb first. John got there first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. We don't know exactly why he didn't go in. Maybe he's just a little bit hesitant here. He thought, I'll let Peter do it first. Whatever. But folks, I want you to think about this for a second. This is probably what the tomb looked like. Think of... Um, a door that's a little bit shorter that you'd actually have to stoop down into. And, and probably what you're doing then is you're actually stepping down into this kind of rectangular pit. And what you have on the three walls, or at least two of the walls, would be shelves, stone shelves. What they would do is they would lay the bodies on those shelves. And probably what you have is you have Jesus laying, Jesus' body was laid on one of these shelves, his head at the entrance toward the entrance here. 
Which is why John could stoop in and he could see clothes lying there, but, but that's about it. He didn't see the, didn't see the, face, the facial cloth. All right, so listen to what happens. Simon Peter, verse 6, therefore also came following him. He entered the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrappings there and the face cloth which had been on his head. Not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Do you know how significant that is? Peter stoops down and comes in. He looks, and, 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 and remember, I'm just going to take my glasses off and realize I couldn't because I had this thing on. But um, he, he looks, and, and remember, Mary had said somebody stole his body. Now, folks, I want you to think about this for a second. If robbers came to steal somebody's body, do you think they would come in and carefully unwrap all the cloth? And then put it all back together so it actually looks like the body just kind of disappeared out of it. And then take, take the, the, the facial cloth and take that off, gingerly fold it together, roll it up, and place it really nice right there. Do you think any robber would do something like that? No, man, if robbers are in there, maybe they're in there for the spices because it's worth a lot of money. Maybe they're in there for whatever. If they're stealing the body, they're just grabbing that body and they're going. And Jesus in this passage, you will find he will do whatever he has to with each one of these disciples to convince them of the resurrection. And when Peter comes in and he sees that shelf, he thinks to himself, this was no robbery. The body was not stolen. The body has disappeared and it's just like the, the clothing just was, is there, unmoved. The Bible goes on to tell us this. Verse, verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also and he saw and he believed. Jesus will move each one of his eyewitnesses to belief. Peter comes in. John comes in and goes, holy mackerel, whatever they say in, in, in Aramaic. But he looked and, and, and he was just overwhelmed by what he sees. And both of them looked at each other and they believed. That's all at this point that Jesus needed to do to convince them that the body was not stolen, but that Christ had resurrected. Look what he says here in verse 9. For as yet, and that means up to this point, they had not understood the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Way back in John chapter 2, Jesus declared, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us he was speaking of his body, and after the resurrection, they believed it. And now as they stood and they saw the body was gone, this was no thievery. This was, there was no robbery here. Christ had risen. And the text tells us in verse 9, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. And I would love to know, when I get to heaven, I want to ask them, so what were you talking about between then and when you got back? I, whatever, you know, great stuff. But we got a problem. That takes care of Peter and John. 
What about Mary? What is going to happen to Mary? How will Jesus convince her? Because apparently that wasn't enough. Look what the text says. Verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Now folks, don't think of somebody going, (laughs) I mean, think of wailing. She is beside herself because she so loves Christ. He meant everything to her. And she comes back. The disciples have left. She comes back. She hasn't put all this together yet. And in her mind, she can only weep. She stooped. And she looked into the tomb. Notice what she saw. She beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? I want you to think about something. Best I can tell. Virtually always when somebody comes in the presence of an angel, how do they respond? Fear. They fall down. They do something like this. This woman is so consumed with Christ that she stoops in and she looks. Two angels on each side. They say, why are you crying? And you know, you think she'd go like, oh, or something like, no, 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 no. She's on a mission, man. Women can be like this sometimes, right? You know, but listen to this. Listen to what she says. She beheld the two angels and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, verse 13, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. All she can think is the body is stolen. I don't care if there's two angels here. Where's the body? Okay, makes sense. Verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around. Behold, Jesus standing there. And did not know that it was Jesus. Why did she not know that it was Jesus? The bottom line is, I don't know. Could it be that she had been crying so much and he was at far enough distance and there was nothing in her psyche that would think that Jesus would be standing by her anyway so she just didn't even go there. She sees Jesus. She's going to think that he's a gardener. Look, look at what happens here. Jesus will ask the identical question that the angels asked. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He's pushing her here now a little bit, isn't he? It's beyond just why are you crying? What are you, who are you really looking for? Well, she's looking for a corpse, but she's going to find a whole lot more than a corpse. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She is on this mission. Somebody stole the body. The angels aren't helping me. If you took the body, just tell me where the corpse is. You don't have to bring it back. I'll go get it. He's precious to us. He's died. We want the corpse. That's all she's doing. Then when you read verse 16, what you envision is she's talking to the gardener. She says that and she begins to turn away. And as she turns away, look at what happens in verse 16. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Roboni, which means teacher. Wouldn't you love to hear how, she said, how Jesus said that? He said that in such a way, regardless of what she could see or not see, when she heard her name from the one she loved, she instantly knew who he was. Mary. And in that moment, she swings around and she, I mean, what's he thinking? Another interview in heaven for me, you know? Like, tell me, when you were like swinging around, like, what are you thinking? Wow, or something, you know? I mean, she's, she's absolutely overwhelmed. It is Jesus. He wasn't stolen. He's alive. Incredible. Listen to what Jesus says to her. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and my God and your God. You know what he's saying? Jesus is telling her as she turns and says, teacher, Jesus is turning and saying, Mary, you need to know something. My relationship with you is going to be very different than the way it used to be. You and the men, the disciples, all knew me to see me physically and all that kinds of things. But Mary, I am going to ascend on high. You can no longer cling to this kind of visual idea anymore because I, I am leaving. I am ascending. Doesn't mean I'm not still with you, the vine and the branches, and all that stuff's all true. But I'm going to be ascending, Mary. You're going to be here. Things are going to change. I must go because if I go, I will send the Spirit, right? Jesus has taught this in John's Gospel. So he says, Mary, our relationship is changing. I want you to go and tell the disciples that I've not only resurrected, but I'm going to ascend to the Father on high. And we are going to start a mission at Pentecost that is going to turn the world upside down. But stop clinging to me, Mary. Things are different now. So what does Mary do? Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told him, them also everything else that he had told her. So you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is moving back to eyewitnesses. He moves to Peter and John, who when they come in and they see, <laughs> this is not a robbery. He's arisen. And then comes to Mary, and that's not enough. And the angels aren't enough. But when she hears the words of the Lord, she knows it's the risen Lord. And she sees, and she believes. How about the ten disciples? What's going to happen to them? Remember, Judas is dead, so that leaves eleven. Judas has killed himself. Leaves 11, and we know in the next encounter that Thomas isn't there, so it's, there's 10 guys. Notice what the text says in verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, that night, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Wouldn't you love to have seen this one? 
I mean, they're reeling, folks. They're getting all these messages from women and, and, and then two guys on the way to a mess and just, all these guys say, well, you can't believe it. And they're just thinking like, yeah, but we're still afraid. Lock the doors. If the Jews find out we're all together, what will they do? And, and all of a sudden, they turn and there's Jesus. Three times in this passage, he says the same thing. Peace be to you. Doesn't that strike you as strange? It strikes me as strange because um, when I look at what's happened the last couple of days, the last word I would use is peace. I mean, it's catastrophe. It's death. It's opposition. It's pain. And Jesus comes in. He says, guys, the world may not be for you. You may be opposed. You may have issues and problems and all kinds of things swirling around, but like the eye of a hurricane, in that very eye, there is peace. And wherever you go, there can be that peace because you know me. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I don't think that'd be the first thing they'd expect. Peace be to you. He goes on and says this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So he says, guys, look, look, look. And they believe. And Jesus wants to give them a little bit more teaching. Along with the peace. He says this. Verse 21. Therefore Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Gentlemen, you are on a brand new mission. I'm ascending as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are here. And you remember all through my ministry, I had the opportunity of representing God the Father. I was sent by him and I represented him to the world around us. I now am going on high and I'm allowing you, my people, to represent me to the world around. You have an intimate, vibrant relationship with me. And out of that relationship, I want you to represent me to the world around. That's pretty powerful. But we get scared. And Jesus says, well, let me give you another reminder that I told you back at the upper room just a couple days ago. He says this. Look at what he says here in verse 21. 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, the relationship has changed. I am still intimately connected to you. I want you to go out and represent me. And we're thinking like, yeah, but how do we do that? We're kind of nervous. You're not like, what's going on? He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. In a very short period of time at Pentecost, you will be given the Spirit. So as a reminder of that, here already he says, receive the Spirit. It is so certain I'm saying it to you right now. Receive the Spirit. You will be empowered by the Spirit to represent me in the world in which you live. And you can literally go up to people and you can say, if you fall on your knees 
and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior based on what he did on the cross of Calvary, and you say, forgive me for all my sins. He says, you can tell them based on my authority, if you forgive somebody their sins, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. What he means by it is that. If I meet somebody and they say, Doug, I've bowed my knee and I've asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. You know what I can tell them? I can look them right in the face and say, your sins are forgiven. And if they say, I don't need Jesus, I can do it my own way, I can say, your sins are not forgiven. See, we speak with that kind of authority because we know Him and we're given of His Spirit, the Spirit who works through us, the Spirit who convicts them. as we're people of peace. Isn't that wonderful? And so he gets done explaining all this, like, guys, things are changing. I told it to Mary, I'm telling it to you. But it's not a bad change, it's a good change because it's all part of what God is doing in this world. It's all going to lead up to Christ coming back one day. It's all part of that plan. There's only one problem. Thomas isn't there. Jesus has done it with Peter and John. Explained it to Mary. He showed up and explained it to his ten, and they're like, they're all for it. They're behind it. They all believe. But you still got Thomas. Look at verse 24. Thomas is a good guy. You know, he gets a lot of, he gets a lot of bad raps. But, I mean, do you remember when they were going up to the temple that one time, and, and uh, someone says, well, if we go up there, you could die. And Thomas says, well, fine, let's just go up and die with Jesus. I mean, you know, the guy's a, he's a good guy, you know? Good guy. But he wants proof. Look what we find here in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, Great, I believe. Is that what it says? Not exactly. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now that's a problem. He can't just see Jesus from a distance. No way, man. No way. He says, if he shows up here, I'm walking up to him, taking my finger, and I'm putting it inside where that nail was. And then I'm going to take my hand, and I'm going to put it inside where that spear went. Like, i got to touch. Sight is not going to be enough. You know what I love? Jesus in his grace condescends to Thomas's request. Look at what happens. And after eight days, again, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them this time. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. And again, he says, peace to you. Look at what he says to Thomas. Does he look at Thomas and say, loser? I guess he could, right? But he doesn't, doesn't do that. Look at what he says, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here 
your finger and see my hands. Thomas, take your finger and put it in my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing, Thomas. Thomas, go for it. That's all Thomas needed. He didn't need to go up and touch. He knew. And listen to his declaration. Everybody up to this point were making statements like they've seen him and he is Lord, he is Lord, we have seen the Lord. Thomas ups the ante, doesn't he? Thomas answers and says when he sees Jesus before even touching him, doesn't need to, he believes. He falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. You are Messiah. You are divine. I believe. And at every level, at every level, Jesus met these eyewitnesses right where they were and revealed himself to be the resurrected Lord. You say, that was 2,000 years ago. Like, here we are. You know, that happened, like, here we are now. Jesus speaks to us. Notice what he says here in the end of verse 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. John is writing his gospel decades after these events. And John is able to say there are eyewitnesses of the account and Christianity, to be Christianity, if Christianity, if we lose the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, we have nothing. You know, if you were, if you were of another tradition, like the Buddhist tradition, and you found out that the Buddha didn't come, it honestly wouldn't make any difference. It, it, it wouldn't make any difference to your religious system. You go right on, quite well, thank you. You lose this with Christianity, then we, we live nothing but pure fantasy. That's the honest truth. And so for Christ, for, the, for, for, for Christ to make absolutely sure that there was a whole series of eyewitnesses who had seen the resurrected Lord so that our faith is based on historical reliability was absolutely critical. And John knows, as he writes decades later, that there are people living then, and we would say that there's people living now, like us, who have never seen the resurrected Lord. And you know what? You don't need to. Somebody needed to see the resurrected Lord, or else this is all a big joke. But you don't need to see the resurrected Lord. Eyewitnesses did. We are earwitnesses of earwitnesses of earwitnesses, of earwitnesses, of earwitnesses, of earwitnesses, of eyewitnesses. Do you see? That's the connection. And he says to all of the earwitnesses that come hereafter, you are blessed. Because you recognize the reality of your faith. Somebody had to see. Seeing is believing for them. We, though, can believe without seeing as earwitnesses. And he puts it all together in the last two verses. Let's look what he says in verse 30 and 31. 
Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Jesus did one sign after another sign after another sign, culminating in his appearance before them to show them, I am the Lord. But look at how the verse ends. Verse 31, I'm sorry. But these have been written. John says, but I'm writing for you ear witnesses now. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It could be that you are with us here today for Easter And maybe you don't normally come here. We rejoice that you're with us here today. We are so happy you came. And God has a message for you. Although you're not an eyewitness when it happened 2,000 years ago, you are an ear witness of what has happened. And this gospel is given to us. This truth is given to us. This account is given to us. That we, without seeing, would believe. And in believing, would experience life. And if you're here today, you say, Christianity to me, at best, is religion. Jesus is not personal. This would be the day for you to believe. This would be the day for you to bow your knee and say, Christ, I am a sinner, I am a rebel, I am lost. You died for me, you loved me. You rose to show victory over, the de- over death and sin. Please, I believe. Forgive me of all my sin. And save me. And this day, this day you can have life. Today! Because you believe in him. There'd be nothing better than for you to become a Christian, a real Christian that knows Christ on Easter. That you might believe. You say, I- I'm a Christian. Doug, I believe, I believe, I believe. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. You know what this text tells us? It tells us that our belief is based on historical reliability, doesn't it? It tells us that we should be going out into a world, we who are people who know the peace of God in a way that nobody else does. We've been reconciled to God through his son. We are with God. We can rest in the midst of turmoil. We have peace. He's the exalted Lord who is coming back one day. He has given us his spirit. We can move into this world as his representatives who just want to share with people how wonderful it is to know Jesus. What kind of husband would I be? If I came into a new setting and uh, somebody said, are you married? I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm married. Well, do you, like, do you, do you, do you love your wife? Yeah, she's pretty good. What would you think of me? Now, my wife is sitting right there. I love that woman. And I'm proud of her. 
And if I go somewhere and say, Mar- married? You better believe I'm married. Let me, Sherry, come on over. You got to meet this woman. I mean, right? Because we're, we're in relationship. And, and Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. We are in relationship. I am sending you out to represent me because you love me. That's how it's supposed to work. And we can go out with confidence. And when someone says, Doug, I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and asked him to save me today, I can look at them and declare, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. What, because of me? No, because of him. I'm merely a messenger. I'm merely a sent one. This Easter passage is for everybody. If you don't know him, come today. And if you do, having his peace, having his spirit, having him as Lord, go out with confidence and represent him to a lost and dying world. That's what it means to live. Let's pray. Father, through your spirit, we would pray that you would overwhelm us with the truth of the gospel. For any friends and family members that might be with us today who have never bowed the knee, found forgiveness from Jesus Christ and entered into a new life in which they can live under his lordship. May this be the day. And Father, for those of us that have trusted, that have received life, may we live it to the fullest, not by getting what we want, but showing you off to a lost and dying world. Father, do your good work for your glory and our good. In Christ's name I pray, amen.